Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, today back uh, on the podcast is Melissa Flora Bixler, uh, author, speaker, um, friggin' social activist, world changer, is back on the podcast. Uh, she's recently written a new book called uh, How to Have an Enemy. Um, and you can uh, you can get that book. There'll be uh, notes in the show notes for where you can notes in the show notes. There'll be links in the show notes for where you can find uh, her book. But she's here with me now, Melissa. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Corey. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, how, how have you been? I'm okay. You know, it's um, I think we're there's always something going on. It feels like a pretty uh, steady marathon in a lot of ways right now. And, um, yeah, but always hopeful things too. So I'm, I'm doing okay. Yeah. This is the book is the, like, are you like doing a whole like book tour thing? Is it like is that keeping you busy or are you just kind of like, you know, letting the book wherever it lands, it lands. I, I wish they let us do that. Um, I would prefer that. Um, but our, there's a lot, of, a lot of pressure from publishers to do to put a little bit more energy into that process of selling your book, which I don't, I don't think any of us love who are writers. No. But um, yeah, but you know, I'm I'm a pastor and a like deeply involved in local activism here, so I can't. I can't leave <laughs> my right, community right, right. long at a right. time. And, um, so I've been a few places to talk about things in the book, but um, yeah, but mostly I've been kind of sticking around here for the work. Yeah. You know, I'm actually now like you've piqued my interest a little bit on the um, whole publishing thing, because I know, you know, I, I had a publisher some time ago reach out to me about, you know, possibly writing a book and, um, they wanted something different from me than what I wanted to write. And it made me curious, like who out there is publishing the kind of book that you wrote, you know, <laughs> like who is, you know, and how much do they, um, you know, as people who are making an investment and, you know, wanting to get their you know, bang for their buck, uh, how much, how do, how are they balancing is from what you've seen, how are they balancing the whole uh, critique of society critique of capitalism, critique of all the things that create conflict and enemies? How are they balancing that with the fact that we all kind of operate under a system that demands we operate by certain principles? Yeah, well, I I work, um, I write with Herald Press, which is a small Mennonite brethren press. Um, and so, you know, I think that that, that in itself should say something, right? This is not like uh, people who are you know, trying to, to make a ton of money. And I didn't get paid a lot to write this book, you know, enough to sort of make it worth my while. But, mm. um, you know, Herald Press definitely it, like functions a lot like a nonprofit, like they make enough um, mm. because they believe in, in the believe in the books that they put out. And, um, and I think you just have to make a decision in publishing sometimes, like, do you want to write because it's important for people to read what you write and to get it out there? Um, 
Or are you willing to kind of work within the confines of like what IVP or Zondervan is willing to put out, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. but in a lot of ways, because I'm a queer affirming Christian, that already means that I could never write for IVP. So, <laughs> right. yeah. so like yeah. some of these things are off the table anyway. Yeah. Um, you just have to be clear about what your commitments are and and that would, we already know that that's costly, right? Like it, it, yeah. um, it is a big deal to not be able to access IVP. They have a lot of money. They have a ton of money. Um, but I don't want to live that life. So here we are. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and one of the things that like I, I um, when I first reached out to you on the podcast uh, last time that I just found, I don't know, refreshing and interesting and intriguing and, and, and something I wanted to draw closer to is how you are postured in the world. Like, it's like we, we are in, especially in the United States, we're in a society that has rules. You know, like, you know, we, we basically uh, are encouraged to outdo others for us to succeed. And, but I see you kind of like living in this interesting tension with that. That's like, yeah, we're here, almost the in the world but not of the world, like <laughs> kind of kind of way of being. And I mean, I just I'd love to hear you just riff even about that for just a couple of minutes before we get into the book, uh, which I definitely want to do. But that's really intriguing to me. You know, even listening to you talk about a book and talk about like believing in the work and putting believing in the work above all else, whereas that just seems really rare to me. Mm. Yeah, you know, and I do think that there, I developed this, um, a sense of the, I guess, the the non-competitive nature of the work that happens around us. Like, um, I just have a very, I guess, um, uh, a a strong sense of what um, I'm able to do, but also that 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 lots of other people are, do, are doing this work too, right? Like, it's not like, um, and we're not in competition for that. Um, like, I offer this small piece, and it's um, not the final word on on the work that we're doing in our community, on on the thing that's written about enemies, right? This is, um, this is a part of just an, a conversation that is always going to be happening. And, mm-hmm. like, here's this piece that I get to offer um, as a part of it. Um, but... It, but but what the sort what the goal of all of this work is right is that we um, is is our mutual liberation right like that's mm. um, I don't I don't need to get famous off this work I don't want to you know I like I said I can't I don't even have the capacity for like any more <laughs> because I you know I need to be able to like I'm trying to get like people out of prison here in Raleigh um, mm. that's really important <laughs> um, that's much more important than like a speaking tour for me um, yeah so so I feel really I that's just that's what centers me is that we're um, yeah, we're already participating in something that has already come to pass, which is the reign of God. And um, so we just do our part and um, and God is faithful in that. And, cre- and that doesn't depend on me, fortunately. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I'm just going to do what, what my part is and um, and it's what will be will be. Wow, man. Yeah. Yeah, getting people out of prison. Uh placing that over like 
keeping that centered over like doing a book tour, selling lots of books. It's just, it is, I don't know, man. I mean, it's, I w- maybe it's not as rare as I think it is. And I'm just like, you know, um, I'm, I'm looking in the wrong places, but it just does. It's refreshing. It seems rare. It seems it's a beautiful story. Uh, now, why did, why this book? Why like this title? Why this idea? What made you decide to write a book from a, you know, um, you know, out of the Christian tradition about enemies. Right. So I, I think like a lot of churches, a lot of communities that are at the margins of power or in relationships of solidarity with people at the margins of power, the Trump administration was this um, sort of massive upheaval in the way that we had that we were organizing our lives and and structuring our the work that we were doing you know we went from overnight feeling like things were not great but at least like um somewhat sustainable and functional as a as a governance um to like ice raids at local factories, right? And so we're going through these, we immediately start training people in our community about how to, I remember like the very first month after the election, even before the inauguration, we did bystander training as a congregation. Like we we were like like preparing ourselves for what we knew was coming. Um, Mm -hmm. We were, we were learning like how to document ice raids and like learning, like what, like getting people into sanctuary, like all of this stuff is like happening. It's very real for our congregation. We have somebody in the middle of the Trump administration who is detained by ice and who we have to get out of ice detention. We're like paying bail for people in ice detention. Like we're, Mm -hmm. All of this is happening in our congregation. And then I get into these spaces outside of our congregation. It's like, wow, what we really need to do right now to understand, to like overcome enmity is like to really understand the where people mm. are coming from. Like this mm. is the, um, the real problem here is the conflict, right? That we haven't listened to one another. Um, that we have enemies at all. And I'm just thinking, are you kidding me? Like, how do you even have time to think like that? Like, like there's all this work to be done. Like the, you know, we're watching them like push out of black people from our neighborhoods. It's like all of this, like fascist judges are getting put into these federal positions. Where I'm like, how do you have any time to be thinking this way? And I realized, oh, that, um, they're really, they're serious about this. Like they really think that the way that this is going to resolve itself is through the sort of relational unity that happens. And then the sort of transformation happens through the church. And I was like, you know, I think the first question here that is left unanswered is um, when we say love our enemies, who are, who are our enemies, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, the question that that remains unanswered here um mm. and that feels like the crux of what's happening like what mm. um 
why we're approach why my church and my community is approaching this so differently from what I'm hearing in a lot of majority white churches around me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're going to actually get into that, we, we need to answer that question first. Um, yeah. 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 You, um, I, I appreciate it. And I'm, you know, about midway through, uh, this book It's one of the, one of the books that I'm reading is yours and it's like, it's really good. Like I, I'm, I'm really like drawing things out of it. I'm like, yeah, like, you know, I, I really appreciate your approach to the idea of enemies that it's not this, like, um, you know, if we just love Jesus harder, we wouldn't <laughs> have enemies or conflict, but that you are speaking to, um, one of the, if not the largest contributing factor to conflict and having an enemy, which you talk about in the first chapter is power. Um, and could you talk like about that? Cause you, you said some things uh, and quoted some people in the first chapter. It was just really phenomenal around this whole idea of, of power dynamics and how that contributes to uh, our enmity and, and our like having of enemies. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I sort of cut my teeth in organizing in the Industrial Areas Foundation, Saul Alinsky's model of, of organizing. And I think until I got into that work, I hadn't really taken power seriously before. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't know how to analyze it. I didn't understand it. Um, and it was a little scary, right? Because I think this is often power is just not one of the things we talk about in church. <laughs> that is um, for sure, for sure. Right? That's like a worldly sure. concept yeah. or something. And Absolutely. somehow we all of a sudden we like <laughs> cross the threshold of the church and power is gone. And you know, despite <laughs> the fact that that is like wh- what the entire canon of the New Testament is about. Like people right. power of the church is like, oh, surely that was just then and not now or something. Um, so I hadn't really thought about power um, in in terms of relationships that that we bring outside of the church into the church. Um, but that there's a sort of replication that happens over and over again. Um, mm. And so, mm. and, and, and I think the way that this gets inserted religiously into our, our into sort of the, the Christian church world is that we, once we don't talk about power, everything just becomes about sort of a, a psychological distancing from one another, right? It's mm-hmm. that we, mm-hmm. there's, it's either misunderstanding or at the end of the day, we actually both want the same thing. We just haven't been able to express it. Um, yeah. And yeah. that can be true. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, it doesn't actually matter if there is one party who has power over another. Um, mm-hmm. And so, what we what we see in in churches that sort of prize this unity across difference, um, and yet ignore the power structures that are present in in their congregation, racialized power, um, power through um, through around human sexuality, gendered power, mm. class power, mm-hmm. um, is that within that unity, there's people who bear the weight of that unity, um, because something mm. is demanded of them. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's people who um, are able to um, for for whom that unity is not costly at all because they are already the people who are in power. Right. Yes, um, absolutely. So 
the I think the place where this often comes up for for churches most saliently right now is an LGBTQ inclusion. Right. So mm. we'll say we don't really have a policy. We just welcome <laughs> everybody here. Um, you know, we don't we we haven't made judgments. We you know, we're we're we just want everybody to meet Jesus here. And Corey, mm. there's always a policy, right? There's always, always. <laughs> There's always some people who can get married and some people who can't. There's mm-hmm. some people who can serve in ministry, some who can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some people who are allowed to preach and some who can't, right? Like, and mm-hmm. and so you can say that until you're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, if you're restricting people from preaching on the basis of who they love, then it, then then the unity that you're talking about is. Um, not only fictive, but it's toxic. Um, and this is repeated. This is repeated in um, around congregations where um, that make claims to be multiracial or multicultural. Um, this happens in uh, congregations that say that they really want to invite people across class difference and economic difference. Right? It just re- it just happens over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and why, and I see one of the ways I've seen this kind of show up lately that is. Um, it's kind of covert, and I think it's equally as dangerous as when um, people in church were basically saying, if we just ignore issues of race or whatever, whatever polarizing issue, it would just go away. Now I see people going um, against our binary political system or the media as the scapegoat for white supremacy. So it's like, it's not that there are systems of power at play that are afflicting people, that are uh, keeping people from their full liberation, really all people from full liberation. It is that the media is manipulating us to be at odds with each other, right? And it's so infuriating because it's not just the church. It's like, it is it is people in corporate America. It's anyone who is benefiting from power and whether they know it or they're just kind of ignorantly going through their lives, any person who's like taking this neutral position, and you talk about this, and you quoted someone, I forget who it was, who basically said, and I'm going to butcher the quote, that like to take a neutral position is to side with the powerful over the powerless. And I am struck by that. I believe that. Why do you think that is something that causes so much tension or pushback from people when they hear it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the part of it comes from a place of of longing, right? Like you want this to be true, right? You want it to be true <laughs> that if we could just say it would be so easy if it was just a misunderstanding. Like it, we could just clear mm. up the misunderstanding. And if we just spent more time together, um, we we really long for an easy out to this um, that that maybe doesn't require um, the, the destruction of some of the basic ways that we have built up um, white, mm. capitalistic, straight identities, right? Like we... It's it's so much easier this other way, um, and and so I think we're willing to live with this fiction um, because we recognize how costly it is. Um, mm-hmm. But what I don't think we we don't do as much work around um, saying that actually 
this is bad for you. Like living with mm. this fiction um, is mm. also bad for us. Um, I remember um, this um, James Baldwin's just incredible essay on white guilt where he talks about um, white people being pinned like butterflies to their own history, right? Like, mm. like the, the, you cannot be free when you are actually impaled by um, the, mm-hmm. by the lies that you tell yourself um, about, oh, well, you know, and he even uses these examples that we, we hear today, like, oh, my ancestors never owned slaves. You know, I was, yeah. Yeah. Um, I am, yeah. I am poor as well, right? Um, <laughs> that we, that we are actually, that's impaling us. Um, mm. And so we, we're, we're being invited, um, people who are at, uh, have occupied the center of ecclesial and racial and governance power are actually being in, invited into freedom. Um, and, and I think that's what, what has really been offered to me through the abolition movement um, is, is to recognize that we are not free. <laughs> we are not free. We are not safe with the structures that we have right now. Um, none of us are. Um, and if we really want to talk about what it means to be free, if we really want to talk about what, what justice looks like, what it means to be on the path of um, reparation, um, then we have to um, disorganize and reorganize um, the systems that we've come to depend on. Yeah, man. And that's so much different than generosity. And I have a whole thing I want to talk about on generosity. So guys, hold tight because I want to talk about this a later date. But it's when you when you talk about the reparations, when you talk about, um, you know, the the this idea of power, I think a little bit about generosity because I realize that generosity is the way that people in power can be benevolent to those who don't have power without disrupting the power structure that keeps them at odds, you know? Right. And so like, I just, there are so many of these things embedded in how we practice faith in the United States or throughout the world, perhaps that like are almost sinister because they are just like righteous enough or good enough to make us feel like we're doing something that is beneficial but in reality, we're actually just reinforcing the same thing that like keeps people bound, you know. And it's 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 man, I, I I like this is what happens when I like when you write something or like I talk to you, my brain starts starts like <laughs> racing on all these thoughts. Um, you you kind of go into um, I forget which chapter it is, but you go into uh, talking about uh, the idea of praying for enemies and and sort of the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms. Um, and it, it made me think about something that Julie and I were recently talking about where I forget what trial it was. I know right now the Kyle Rittenhouse trial is happening. I believe it's still happening. Um, and the trial for the murderers of Ahmaud Arbery is happening. And we were talking about like how when someone goes to prison for like a police officer who kills a black, an unarmed black person or uh, George Zimmerman for killing Trayvon Martin. We're outraged that this that that George Zimmerman is has never been, you know, served any time for his crimes. But yet at the same time, I think if he had, what would that do for the family of Trayvon Martin? Mm-hmm. You know, um, what does vengeance actually give us in the end? And that's kind of what I'd love to talk to you about as you wrote that chapter, talking about like praying for an enemy of people who prayed for vengeance, what do we actually gain 
from vengeance and why do we think that vengeance and justice are somehow connected? Because obviously throughout history, we have thought that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, you mentioned this and um, reminds me of this. It's not, I mean, it's not a game, but it's like a conversation, I guess, that my, my um, nine-year-old son and I have all the time, um, which mm. is um, where he names a crime and we talk about what it would actually take um, outside of the prison system to try to mm. like, to like figure that, like to like what it would be to, wow. um, how would you make that, um, how would you address that? <clears throat> what would bring um, some sort of justice to the situation? Um, and this and is what you call games like, in your house. Like, right, I, right. I know. You're playing like, duck, duck, goose and you're playing yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> like justice game (laughs) but I love it because it's such a helpful experiment for me in the limitations of my own imagination and but also just this because so much of this is actually just is just that right we have restricted our imaginations for what's possible uh, for our lives for our community to um, to what we see available to us, right? Mm. So um, when, so I think the most recent one was we were talking about, he had heard about somebody getting a DUI. Um, I think it was like Duke players were, were Duke fans in this house. Apologies okay. in advance. Right. I knew a lot of <laughs> there around that. Um, and yeah, and so explain to him what a DUI is. And then we have this conversation about what, like, what does it take to get there? Like, what, what kind of, mm. what kind of privilege or what kind of um, sense of entitlement or on the other side, a sense of brokenness and alcohol dependency, like would lead someone mm. to that. And those are two mm. different things, right? If you yeah. are somebody who is in a place of thinking, I possess the world and there's nothing that I can do that will ever make me accountable because I am a young white man living in America Justice looks very different for you than someone who is struggling with alcohol dependency and um, wow. or made a bad decision that night, right? And our justice system, our injustice system, treats those the same, right? Those are wow. those um, that crime committed in that different way is going to show up in the justice system in the same way, um, and those actually mm. require two different responses from us if justice is going to be served if we are going to be safe as a community, if harm is going to be addressed, um, if the community is going to respond in a way that makes us whole because something has been broken here, right? Harm has been done um, to us. And that harm requires some sort of recognition, naming, lament, and healing um, to be able to move forward for our wholeness and for the wholeness of those who committed that crime. but we live in a justice system that does not allow that to be possible. Um, and so the question that I think for abolitionists is always, how do we begin to create that culture among ourselves now? Right? How do we say this isn't just something that's going to be fixed because we convince the Wake County Justice Center to start doing different kinds of um, reparative justice work? That's, that's great. I'm for that. I advocate for that. But just as uh, abolition needs to start at home for me, right? And how I parent my children. Um, abolition mm. is how 
I respond when harm is done to me um, with both accountability through my community and a recognition that that justice has not been met and needs to be. Um, how does how does how do we come away um, approaching wholeness um, in our own lives? How do we begin to collect wow. the attitudes of abolition now um, among ourselves? Wow, man, you said so much, and I like like I'm sitting here now thinking of the like cheesiest, corniest question in the whole world. Um, I just had this WWJD flash before my eyes because, you know, that was used so frequently for like, you know, when you're alone with a girl, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or when you go to, when, when you go to watch that movie or buy that CD. Um, but I, I'm wondering when you, when you mentioned abolitionist, right. Can we imagine a world where Jesus doesn't show up as an abolitionist? Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd say that, like, thinking, well, obviously not, but I'm also thinking, like, Jesus was, seemed to be very mysterious. Um, you know, if we take the stories of Jesus seriously, um, you know, where do we imagine Jesus showing up in this conversation? Yeah. I mean, Corey, I am a Bible-believing Christian, and Jesus Christ says... I have come to set the prisoners free. <laughs> like that is yeah. like, um, yeah. and so I absolutely believe that. Um, I I am committed to that um, as a believer. I am committed to the stories and acts where prisons are shaken apart and opened mm. up. Um, mm. And I I think that like the consistent narrative in Scripture is a narrative of um, prisons being a place of degradation and death and pain. Um, and so I, I absolutely think that, that the, that the Jesus that we say that we're going to follow is the one who, um, comes to break open our imaginations, right? The, the tomb that breaks open at, on, at the resurrection is not just the, the tomb breaking open for eternal life. It is the tomb that is breaking open for the possibilities of what can happen now. Um, now that we have we have a, we have taken a hold of um, the God who has redeemed all creation, um, yeah. and so yeah. So I, I I recently gave an interview, and I think this person was maybe expecting me to give you know, and I do. I read a, a ton of abolitionists. That's like uh, you know that's that's my canon, but. I was like, I'm I'm an abolitionist because I'm a Christian. Like, how, mm. like how can we, like, mm. because uh, because we follow a God who um, rose from the dead. Like, that seems like mm. a pretty like like we're on the path there. Um, mm. Imagining mm. that no one is the worst thing they have done, right? That mm. we we fully affirm that um, everyone is redeemable, um, and and so if we're going to take that seriously we're going to take that seriously in abolition. I mean, I'm, I'm with it. I think there's like, um, you know, my mind always wanders to like, you know, I, I, I hold to no one's the worst thing you've ever done. And of course my mind always goes to Hitler or, you know, any, any other person who, who the worst thing that they've ever done 
<laughs> you know, because there's the worst thing that you and I have ever done. And then there's the genocide of human beings, worst thing that I've ever done. And you go, yeah, what is the consequence for that? What is justice for that? You know, and, and you know, of course, I think maybe you and I, are, I know I've talked to other people about like the book of Maccabees and the whole idea of afterlife justice that arose from Jewish folks going, we're not, we're not seeing the fulfillment of the law saying do this and thrive in our lifetime. So we have to see it over there. We, we haven't seen justice for this wicked king here. So we have to see it somewhere else. And I kind of, you know, as a person who thinks that it's cruel for a divine spirit power being forced to call, to inflict suffering on people for eternity, I still do wrestle with the, yeah, dude, you, you massacred millions and millions of people, you know? So that's kind of where I sit in this real interesting, sometimes terrorizing tension around, you know, abolition and, and around like, you know, um, peace and togetherness and love and all of that winning out of the end, because there's people that you go, man, does that person really deserve, uh, mercy, Mm. you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, so I, I wanted to ask you this though, like, cause we, we were talking before we came on a little bit about, um, you know, just when you write a book like this, there, you know, or probably any book, but certainly a book like this, I'm sure there's critics that, that, you know, come along. Like, are there any critiques that you found interesting um, that you've heard about, um, you know, of, of the book that, that, you know, you think are interesting or things that you'd want to speak to? Yeah, you know, I think that there is um, one 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 um, review essay I read that I think was brought up some interesting questions. Was sort of around like how much can happen for people to change when they're in the church. Like, what is the expectation about you know? Is there a sense of like, well? Like how, like when do you when when do you cross the line in sort of purity politics where there mm. just isn't room anymore for um, people to grow or change or um, yeah that the expectations are such that you you really just have eliminated most people from being able to be a part of your <laughs> congregation. Um, wow. Yeah, which I think is an interesting question um, or an interesting sort of way to think about that. Um, because with a, with a lot of sort of critiques around my work, um, it, 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 there's always a sense of like a very all or nothing attitude about, mm. <laughs> about, the, about this kind of work. Like I, I bring up in that, um, in the book, how, um, my, how I was, my reaction to hearing that, um, a pastor sort of brag about ICE agents and undocumented people worshiping together and sharing communion. Um, mm. And that is actually not something that feels very hopeful to me. It actually yeah. feels yeah. Really tragic. Um, yeah. And so one of the, one of the sort of questions I got in a podcast about that recently was, well, how would you like, it sounds like you would just stop people from having communion. Like what makes you, what makes that any different than, you know, the Catholic bishops refusing to give communion to Biden. And it's just as interesting mm. that that's where you jump to. And so <laughs> like, um, 
oh, so what it means if we take seriously that you shouldn't have communion with people you're going to deport tomorrow. Oh, wow. Um, like there's a yeah. lot, there's a lot of things between here and I'm going to re- personally restrict you from having communion. Like, hmm. and we create a culture in our church that, that where sacramental reality actually means something for our lives. Like can hmm. that happen through, through teaching and through, um, through the work of like, um, intentional solidarity, hearing the stories, holding each other accountable, mm. talking about what it, what, how do our jobs mean something for our faith in our lives? Like, there's all these ways to sort of um, to create a culture around, in your community that is both um, open to growth and change, but also takes seriously that we want to like be people who take Jesus seriously, right? Yeah. Um, and so the sort of all or nothing kind of attitude about this work is it's just something I note and and also just something I think that comes from sort of a limited imagination and a punitive one, right? Like mm-hmm, interesting mm-hmm. the thing you go to is, oh, you're gonna take something away from people who don't align. And I was like, mm-hmm. that is really interesting that that's the only because that's what we're trained to think, right? Like the yeah. only way um to address this is through punishment. Um I'm wow. gonna like keep you from the table rather than saying like, what does it actually mean to be a community that loves each other enough that we don't want to put ice agents in the position of destroying their own souls by being yes. kidnappers, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, that's another way to think about this, but all mm-hmm. we can imagine is, is, is being punitive. Wow. And I mean, you know, when I, when I hear you talk, I, I hear this idea of taking Jesus seriously and, I think that pri- over the last several years, taking Jesus seriously um, has seemed to be, be, begin to represent all of the worst things about politics and instincts for human beings. That like it's become like, oh, you take Jesus seriously, therefore you hate gays, you hate, you know, any woman who's had an abortion. You are, you know, you you were Trump supporting, and what I'm hearing you say about taking Jesus seriously is fascinating and a great sort of sobering reminder for me about the power of this tradition is that it is not a tradition that separates how we live Monday through Friday and Saturday from Sunday or whenever, whenever you, you know, enter into a place of worship. It is a, it is a practice, a way of being that does affect the job I choose to take. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first, second century, they, you know, you couldn't be a part of a, of a faith community if you were a soldier because you were, because they were anti-violent. Um, and so there's just like this, this, this idea that I hear you calling um, at least any person who takes their, their faith seriously to, hey, all, there is no separation between, you know, secular and sacred. It's all sacred. Mm-hmm. And, and I take communion. It's not just something I do as a as a ritual at church. It is something that is binding me to other people, and it is something where I am sharing life with another person, literally. And how could I do that with someone that I am going to kick their door in tomorrow and deport them and their children to some, you know, back to wherever uh, they're from? It's just like how, how, you know, how how do I? And you mentioned in the book, like, you know, you, you mentioned about. Um, sending black folks back into, um, you know, back into violence and oppression 
with those lawmakers or, or policymakers who they had communion with and how harmful that is to everyone. And, and I think that's just something that once you take it seriously, those are all questions that you have to ask yourself. Yeah, I mean, we I have this sort of um, joke at our church that, you know, how there's... Um, like a dashboard of like how many, how much money people gave or how many people were baptized or, you know, gave their life to Jesus that like our dashboard would be like how many people left their jobs <laughs> because <laughs> like, seriously, you follow Jesus. It's like, um, come to us for like job relocation, like right, experience. Right. like, because that happens. And it's not again, because anyone's like, wagging their finger and saying like, oh, you shouldn't have that job. Or, you know, you really need to think about the role that you play in the insurance industry, which is the most recent sort of experience of this. But but because people are are with other people who they recognize that they are inflicting harm through the work that they do, right? Like, wow. this, like and you cannot choose both. You cannot be an enemy to these people in our community and then um, say that you are one body with them in Jesus around the table. Like something needs to happen in the midst of that to um, for us to like figure out how we do life. Um, and that, that happens in incredibly gentle and hopeful ways in our congregation um, in ways that are, that I are not never initiated by me. <laughs> I'm I'm a wow. priest among priests in this congregation, um, and um, and and because we believe in the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us um, of of the ways that we are not living um, in the fullness of our life in Jesus. Um, all of that happens, right? That's what church makes possible. Um, mm. Church at its best, right? Makes mm. possible. Yeah, man, uh, it's it's great to have you back, and it's great to to hear uh, you talk about these things that are important for all of us to listen to. And and I, I mean, I'm, and if you're listening to this, and you know you're not a follower of Jesus, or you know don't come out of a Christian tradition, hopefully you can still find within this some um, ideas and ways of being that I think are worth all of us participating in. I mean, you know, I think justice is justice. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think that any uh, religious group has a uh, monopoly on justice. You know, justice is something that's it's above all of us, um, I think. So, Melissa, thanks so much for, for coming back and spending some time with us. Um, uh, is there anything else you want to say before we, we, we sign off? Yeah. Uh, don't forget to give to your local bail fund. Um, mm. That's the fastest and most efficient way to help get people out of prison and to support them as they're um, in uh, working to stay out. Wait, there's a local bail fund like everywhere. Well, maybe not everywhere, um, but if you don't have a local bail fund, you can give to the national bail fund, but. I think tenancy, if you have a local bail fund, it's probably good to give there because they have the best sense of how to utilize those resources on the ground. Dude, I was today years old when I found out about that. So, um, and maybe some of you were too. So link to that is in the show notes. Um, you can click on that. You can also find Melissa's book, How to Have an Enemy, uh, in the show notes. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for um, sharing this podcast with 
anyone you've shared it with. Please leave a uh, review, a rating, if you haven't already. And thanks for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time. Thank you.